Look up at the screens here. We're going to continue with our morning. Once again, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to have you with us here uh, in person. And, and those of you who are uh, tuning in online, maybe a few of you out in the plaza and then some of our digital venues, our junior hires uh, in our digital venue and video venue checking us out right now too. So welcome to all of you. Um, and uh, if you are at home today because of our um, winter storm that we're experiencing... Uh, we just want you to know the streets are safe. It's okay. Um, and if you come out, we'll even have some of our youth group help take your chains off your tire when you get here. So, uh, but it's, it's good to have all of you uh, with us here today. Uh, we are going to uh, jump in in just a moment, but I just want to give a little update on a couple things. One, uh, as, as many of you know, if Seacoast is your home, uh, some of the things that we've been uh, looking forward to in this next year and praying about. Um, one of the big updates we have for you is we've been praying about uh, launching our new Spanish language ministry that we've been talking about for a couple of years. And uh, we're in the midst of actually towards the end of a process of interviewing um, our launch team, our Spanish, uh, Hispanic ministry team uh, has uh, recommended a candidate. Uh, we've met with him and have extended an offer and we think it's going to work out. So um, very soon in the next month or two, uh, we will hopefully be welcoming in a new community outreach pastor uh, who will lead that ministry. So we want to keep you updated on that and ask you to continue to pray with us uh, that it's, uh, we, we feel strongly that the Lord's leading us in this direction, uh, but we covet your prayers and believe that this is um, a big step of faith for us as a church. And so we wanted to give you that kind of exciting news. We're really excited um, uh, that we're at this point in the process. So uh, let's jump into the message for today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 18. And uh, as I was looking at this week, the author, uh, Donald Miller, talks about how to write and tell a good story. And one of the things he says is for a good story, you have to have a, a, a character who knows what he or she wants, has a mission to accomplish, and has to overcome some obstacles to accomplish that mission. So every good story has to have that kind of, uh, that journey of going towards a direction and overcoming obstacles to get there. If you think of some of the uh, best stories or the stories you like best, maybe uh, the, the books or movies or, or, t or, or TV shows or whatever, most of them have that formula. Think of uh, some of the best movies of all time. You have things like Saving Private Ryan, right? You have this, this group of soldiers who are on a mission to find Private Ryan, and they have to overcome obstacles to get there, and, and ultimately they get there and save him. And if I just spoiled the movie for you, like seriously, you're 25 years late. This is, there's no spoiler alert after like two weeks, okay? It's 2021. So, uh, so Saving Private Ryan, you have an, another great movie, families, you know this, Finding Nemo. Come on, it's a good movie, right? So you have, you have Marlon and Dory, and they're on this epic journey, overcoming obstacles, until finally they find Nemo. Otherwise, the name would be a totally different name of the movie. So that's kind of how it goes. So these are some of the great movies out there. Um, Dumb and Dumber, I mean, great movie. 
Lloyd and Harry on this epic journey across the country in their, their van that looks like a dog. I mean, it's already the makings of a great movie, right? And they have that van until one of them trades it in for a moped and totally redeems himself. Only someone who knows the movie is laughing. Okay, good, you're with me. And they're on this epic journey, this epic journey. Um, another, how about a classic? Little Women. I actually have no idea what that's about at all. I don't, I don't know. I, so I, I assume they overcome some sort of conflict in their many, many conversations. So to get to the end. <laughs> but sometimes when we think of what makes a great story, those all make good movies, good stories. What about you? Would you say your life would make a good story? If someone were to write it down and, and hear your life story and write it down, would it, would it follow the formula? Would you have those epic adventures and overcoming obstacles to get where you are? Or maybe just your story of faith. Was your story of faith one where you had to overcome addiction? You had to work through some marital strife or you had to face some overcome, uh, overwhelming odds with a health issue? And, and it led you to the point where it led you to Jesus. Is that your story? I mean, that, that makes a good story. I know some of you in this room, that is your story. Battling a life long of substance abuse, and finally you meet Jesus and you overcome. It's such a great story. But the truth is, I'm willing to bet that most of us in here, myself included, our stories feel kind of ordinary. I mean, most of us, my guess, is we're kind of born into... A relatively good family, maybe a great family. Family that loved you, you were raised in relative comfort, you had a pretty good life. We all face obstacles, there's no doubt that we all have ups and downs, but some of us would say, I don't know if I would want to watch this movie of me, it's kind of ordinary. And there's a temptation to think that that ordinary story of faith isn't an epic story that God is writing. A temptation to think that the, the one who's, the miraculous stories of overcoming addiction and, and overcoming health struggles and, and, and learning to find God in the midst of depression and all of those things, that those miraculous stories are the, the real stories and some of us feel like ours maybe aren't miraculous. Today as we dive into the scripture, we're gonna meet a bunch of characters who I believe help us all relate. To see that actually your story is a miracle. If you were born into a good family and raised in relative comfort and, and you have a good job and, and, and your kids are, are good kids, mostly, all, sometimes, <laughs> that even that is a miracle. That God placed you there and introduced you to faith. And today in the passage that we're going to see as we're going through our series called Family Stories, these are stories of the first Christians and how our family of Christ was growing. And some of the stories are just ordinary. But they're no less miraculous. And that's where I hope we can all find ourselves today. So pray with me as we jump in. God, we thank you so much for today and I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us and that you're writing a story of our lives, the master storyteller. 
And your hand is upon each one of us here today, each one of us listening online. And God, I pray that we would find or turn our praise to you, to the master storyteller. That we could see how you've been weaving your story into our lives from the beginning. So we thank you. And we give you this time now and we ask that your word would challenge us, encourage us. And ultimately help us experience the freedom of knowing you and loving you today. In your name, amen. So first, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, chapter 18 is where we are. And I'm going to just go ahead and read this passage. And it's, it's going to take a little bit to read this section. Um, but I want you to hear it. And I just have to warn you, there's like eight different names that I'm going to mention. And as our teaching team was studying it, I think uh, Matt said, I feel like someone's telling me the story of my cousin's sister's brother's nephew or something like that. And, and so uh, just bear with me with all the names, but let's hear it together. It says this, after these events, Paul left Athens and went on to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, and having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because the emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together, for they were trade, uh, tent makers by trade. And Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood is on your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, as they listened to Paul, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul at a vision at night, Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man is inciting the people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of some crime or vicious, unscrupulous act, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But... Since it's questions about the teachings and persons of your own law, see to it yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. But they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. Yet Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. So this is one of our family stories. This is a story of our faith, our heritage for those who believe in Jesus. And a little context as we get started. Now they're in a town called Corinth. And a few things to know about Corinth. Corinth was a highly uh, uh, successful, so it was a, a kind of a, a highly intellectual town. Many people were very learned here. Uh, this is a metropolis. It was the capital of a region called Achaia, which is, think of it as kind of northern Greece. It was right out near Athens, but the region north of Athens. 
So it was a highly uh, successful metropolis. It was highly educated, and it was highly spiritual. There was temples, and there was worship of, of various gods and goddesses going on all over. They're interested in other faiths and religion. They were very spiritual. But what came along with their intellectualism and their success and their spirituality came a high degree of immorality, too. That they were actually known, Corinth, even in the Greco-Roman world, was known to be immoral people. In early, uh, in antiquity, there were some who would call, if, in a play, if there was an actor or actress who was depicted as always being intoxicated, it was, they were called a Corinthian. That's the extent of how they thought, what they thought about Corinthians. In fact, even when it comes to sexual immorality, uh, it was the norm that if you were married, a man married to your wife, your wife was there to uh, allow you to have kids and have babies, and that was it. And then you were allowed to then go to the temple and, and community prostitutes, and it was common for men to have their wife, but then to have other women and young men that they would satisfy all their other desires with. That was norm. That was the norm. So Corinth became known as this place where morals weren't actually, especially godly morals, weren't high on anyone's list. So you have highly intellectual, highly successful, highly spiritual, and somewhat immoral or highly immoral. If you were to think of a modern-day equivalent, you may think of something like Encinitas, California, perhaps. Spiritual, intellectual successful. No need for God. And that's the context in which we find Paul now in this story. So we want to look at just three aspects of the story today that we see that's part of our family history. The first thing I want to look at is look at the new characters in this story. There's all these new characters who are loving and building God's church. We have new characters loving and building God's church. So there's some new people who've been introduced to us. Now, anytime Luke, and we've talked about the author of the book of Acts, when he uses real names in real places, it's intended to say, hey, this actually happened. We want you, you can go talk to Sosthenes. You can go talk to Crispus. You can, you can hear for yourself. So it's real people in a real place and time. And here's a few of them. I just want to point out a couple of them. Aquila and Priscilla. They're mentioned here, and then they become, they're mentioned about five or six other times in the New Testament. They become prominent members in the early church. Uh, they, we even know that uh, Aquila, the husband, and Priscilla, his wife, were known to uh, perhaps host, host a church in their home. We know that they went, and together they taught the apostle Apollos in the ways of the Lord that cleared up some of his understanding of the gospel, and so they gave him better understanding. That happens actually later in this chapter. So they're mentioned often. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verses uh, 3 and 4, I have this on the screen for you. It says this. Paul is writing to the Romans. It says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but the, all the churches and the Gentiles are grateful to them. So here's some new characters who all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to their service and their work. New characters who are loving and building the church. 
The next characters we see here are Silas and Timothy. We've actually heard of them just a little bit to this point in the book of Acts. We find that they actually came from a background, a Jewish background, a background of faith. They were converted under the ministry of Paul. And in this case, it appears that when they came down, they were coming down from a region called Macedonia, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. And they were likely bringing a financial gift because to this point, Paul was working as a tent maker or a leather maker is actually more probably accurate. And he's working in a trade. But when Paul and T- or Paul, sorry, Timothy and Silas come down, he says he now can devote himself wholly to the teaching of the word. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, that the churches up in Macedonia sent a financial gift to support Paul's ministry. Think of it as Paul got hired onto a full-time staff in Corinth. (laughs) One of the reasons why we hire staff even at Seacoast is because once you reach a certain size, you want people who are thinking and dreaming and and doing counseling and studying and doing stuff 40 to 50 hours a week when you can't do that if you're bivocational. Trust me, I worked in the church doing full-time work in the marketplace and full-time church work is very difficult. And here's an example of where they said, hey, we're growing to the point where we want to support the ministry of Paul. And so Paul and, or Silas and Timothy come down bringing that gift and supporting his ministry. Next character, this guy named Titius Justice. Titius, what a great name. Uh, and, and so he was known as holding the house. It looks like he's hosting the church in his house once they're kicked out of the synagogue. He has a Roman name. Likely he was wealthy because he owned a home and where he owned it, probably a person of some influence in the community. So he becomes, a, he was a worshiper of God, which often means that they believed in the God of the Old Testament of the Hebrew scriptures, not necessarily Jewish, but a worshiper of that God. And he then decided he believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures. The next name, Crispus. Every time I hear that name, I kind of think of a, the breakfast cereal. What was that? Yeah, Crispix, if you remember that. So good with lots of sugar. But anyway, so um, Crispus was the leader of the synagogue um, until, apparently, he's only the leader until probably he converts to Christianity. We see that he and his whole family convert, and uh, he's no longer listed as the leader of the synagogue at that point. Again, The leader of the synagogue is not the rabbi. It's probably like the head elder, um, probably was wealthy, educated, and uh, a man of great standing in the community. The next one we hear is Sosthenes. Sosthenes, we don't know much about. Um, His story changes. We're going to look at it in a moment. But he's mentioned, perhaps it's him, one other time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And he says, I, Paul, am writing this letter along with our fellow brother in the Lord, Sosthenes. So it, it might not be the same Sosthenes, because uh, it actually was a common name in, in Corinth, uh, but it likely is the same person, because that's why they're connected. And Sosthenes, in our story, is the leader of the synagogue, so probably the one who replaced Crispus. And at the end of the story, he's beaten up for some reason we'll look at. So when I hear all these, I see these new characters loving and building the church. I I was thinking back to uh, when I was at the end of my high school, uh, senior year of high school, and then beginning of college. uh, I was at a local church in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, so this weather was, this was called summer, Um, and so in Tacoma, Washington, I remember someone asked me, he said, hey, I teach the fifth and sixth grade boys Sunday school class. Will you come in and help me this week? And so I went in, and one of the dads of the fifth and sixth grade boys was teaching the class, 
And, he, and then at the end of it, he said, hey, next week, do you mind leading the lesson? And I thought, okay, I can do it next week. So I, I, I came back next week, and I did it, and I led the lesson. He goes, that was great. He goes, um, hey, do you mind maybe doing it again next week? And I was like, okay. And he goes, and oh, by the way, I'm taking the summer off. <laughs> so I'll let you deal with that. <laughs> And that's effective uh, kids ministry recruiting. So that's how it works. <laughs> but I started doing that, and I loved it. In fact, that's what led me into eventually working in student ministries. I had no interest in working in a church. I had no interest in being a pastor. Uh, it just kind of happened, but it started there. But here's the thing. It's not about my becoming a pastor. But it was as an 18-year-old, new in the faith, being asked to teach these fifth and sixth grade boys, which I still think was, is one of the funnest, greatest stages. And when I retire, Lord willing, one day, I will be able to retire. And uh, I would go back and, and, and teach again in that age. I love that age. But what I loved was a picture of what it looks like for people loving and building the church, just normal people. I was not qualified to teach a Sunday school class. I did not have very many answers some of the kids knew more of the Bible than I did. I had no training in how to do it. There was certainly maybe some natural abilities, but it was just me saying, sure, I'll do it. A couple of my other friends at the same church, who one happens to be my wife to this day, she and her friend were teaching this, the kindergarten class in the same as high schoolers. Why do I mention that? Because when the church together, normal people, ordinary people, loving and building the church is how it's always been. And we see that here in this story. It's part of the early church. In fact, what we want for you to experience at Seacoast is much of what the early church experienced. Because I, and when I say I want it for you, I know that for me, when I am giving more than receiving, I experience the joy and blessings of knowing the Lord. I grow more in my faith when I'm giving more than receiving. So if you want to know, what does it mean? What does it look like at Seacoast? There's like, there's four things that we would say are kind of a part of being a part of Seacoast, what we'd want you to participate in. I just want to show them to you really quickly. Here's, here's the four things. One is this, worship and learn together. You're, all, you're already doing one of those. Great job, all of you here today. We want to worship and learn together. That's what the early church did. That's what we want for you. The next thing is this, connect with others. And we say connect with others, we're, we're talking about in small group, smaller group setting. That might be in a life group. That might be for some of you who've never been in a group. We have a, a group called Rooted. We encourage you to go to respond.church, sign up for that. We'll be starting that uh, soon. And uh, that's, uh, that's a Sunday morning group. Um, it could also just be, I meet with a group of guys every other Friday early in the morning. There's three of us. We're not asking you to be in 10 different groups. We're asking you just to be known by at least one or two other people and to get to have some vulnerability. We don't think that this is all there is to the story. So we want you to connect with others. It could be a women's study, a men's study. We don't want to prescribe what that looks like for your life stage, but we say we don't want you to go through the Christian life alone. So connect with others. The next one is this, serve using your gifts in the church. Got them out of order, but we have blessed the community is one of them too. <laughs> so first, the next, the one I want to talk about is serving uh, in the church. That's using your gifts, using your talents, your time, your resources, giving more than receiving. If we all just jumped in somewhere, 
That's part of the church. So use your giftedness somewhere. Some of you, again, we talk about it often. Serve where God has uniquely gifted and called you and where it works for your life stage. Some of you have more time than others. Some of you have, have developed skills that you would say, I don't want to be, I don't want to use my skills just hanging out in, in the parking lot directing cars. Some of you say, I've been a CEO all my life. I would love to stand in the parking lot directing cars. I would love just to be a smiling face. It's where is God putting a passion in your life? And where do you feel like he could use you? And then bless the community. One of the challenges we gave is what if everyone at Seacoast gives two hours a month to serve the community somewhere? Serve in the local school. A lot of us, just that's built into our lifestyle, right, when you have kids. But serve in the food bank, local school, after-school tutoring, something to give to the community. We believe the church exists for the benefit of its non-members. The early church did that. So these are the four things. You say, what does it look like to be at Seacoast? This is it. We don't want to overcomplicate your life. We don't want to overchurch your life. But we want Christ to be lived out in you in all of these areas. And that's what it looked like in the early church. So that's what we see. There was new characters who were loving and building the church. What's the next part of the story we see? Next thing is this. It was the same message as the foundation for mission. Paul's message in this story was Jesus is the Messiah. That's the same message we have heard him preach in Jerusalem. It's the same message we heard him preach um, in every region, in Galatia, in Berea, in Thessalonica, all these cities we've looked at in Athens last week. It's always Jesus is the Messiah. This is what we call the good news. We are in need of a Savior, and Jesus is our Savior, who will give you life not just for the future, but for today. That message did not change. Now, I want you to understand this. Notice the culture of Corinth was different. Corinth was not Jerusalem. So the message did not change just because the culture changed. In fact, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. I have it for you. He said this, I handed to you as of first importance what I in turn had already received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And first importance, the good news is the message I bring to you. There's a temptation to say as culture changes, our message needs to change. Now I will say this, of course, the context of our message changes. How we talk about things change. We did not talk about what it looks like to have Christ lived out through your social media 20 years ago. That was not one of our messages because it was irrelevant. Obviously, now it, it applies, but the message of Jesus doesn't change. Culture wants to change the message of Christ. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, it used to be that people used the Bible to critique culture, and now they use culture to critique the Bible, which is backwards when we believe that we have truth handed down from God and truth that has worked for thousands of years in different contexts, in different cultures, all across the globe, why would we change it for this moment? Now, do we need to change how we approach people? Absolutely. Do we need to change our posture and the way we think about and talk about the good news of Jesus? Yes, we do. A new phrase that's been coming up more and more, I guess it's not so new anymore, but I, I think Gabe Lyons uh, may have coined it in one of his books. It also, uh, Barry Corey wrote a book called Love Kindness, who uses the same phrase, and it's called having a firm center, but soft edges. 
I think sometimes in the church, traditionally, we've had firm edges and a firm center. And the firm edges have bounced a lot of people away from faith. These authors are calling for us to have soft edges, but a firm center. In fact, in Gabe Lyons, he has a new book out, it just came out that says this, the next Christians, talking about Christians now, must be aware that operating in the center of the world requires a deep anchoring in Christ. In other words, we need to be in the world. We need to love the people that we interact with. We need to not be afraid or, or shy away from, from those who are hurting and lost and, and even belligerent towards faith. But being in the center of that world requires a deep anchoring in Christ. A grounding that's only achieved through means that are unbecoming to most. In other words, by this wholehearted commitment, this faith in God to be everything. And without that anchoring in Christ... He said, being in the world hardly ever works. We have to find a way to trust that our faith will intersect with God's faithfulness as we step out and live in a world that is against Christ. So, it's the same message in different cultures and different contexts. The last part of the story that we see here today is there was this new characters, a same message, but now we have unique stories of God at work. We see how God's at work in their lives in different ways. Notice this, Aquila and Priscilla. They, see, they are Jews, and they seem to come to faith while working alongside Paul. They're, they're his co-workers. They're sitting in the office around the water cooler. Who's, has anyone ever actually had a water cooler conversation, by the way? Is that just, okay, yeah, there are some of you. Great, so... I guess it happens on things other than on the office. So, but they were having water cooler, and likely they're making, they're leather workers, they're, they're working, uh, building tents, they're sitting there together for hours a day. It would have to come up where they would say, well, how did you get here, Paul? Oh, well, let me tell you, there's this, this miraculous encounter. God blinded me, spoke to me, and on the road to Damascus. How about you guys? <laughs> no, but they come to faith as co-workers of Paul. Did they have any rebellion in their life? Doesn't seem like it. Were they raised in good homes? We don't know. They were Jews who were living in Rome, probably somewhat successful. What were their obstacles? Well, they were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. They had some obstacles in their life. But their story was they met a guy named Paul. They worked together. They heard his story, and it made sense. Look at the next one. We have Silas and Timothy. I mentioned them before, but they had a legacy of faith. Timothy's mother and grandmother actually taught them and handed down the ways of, of the, in this case, it would have been the Jewish faith to him. And once they meet Paul and they start seeing the fulfillment of scriptures, they convert to Christianity. But he has a legacy of faith. We think he was raised in a probably good home. That's his story. Titius Justus. We don't know anything about him. But he most likely heard Paul's teaching Again, probably in the marketplace. He was wealthy. He was successful. He sees this new leather maker in town. Probably gets to know him. It's his local daily barista. Who knows? And as they get to know him, somehow a friendship is struck. He comes to faith. Crispus, leader in the community, leader in the synagogue, upright citizen, man of high morals, Here's the message of the fulfillment of Scripture, and he and his whole family convert. That's what we know. 
Sosthenes, this is the one I love. We don't know much about him, but has anyone noticed how bizarre this story is? He's the leader of the synagogue. They take Paul before the Roman ruler and say, hey, we're t- we, we, want, we have an uprising against Paul and what he's teaching. The Roman governor, the proconsul is the governor of the area. He says, I don't care. It has to do with your law. We don't ca- I don't care. So Paul, I'm not going to judge this. You're fine. And I want you to notice, too, Paul was just given a word from the Lord that says, don't be afraid any longer, for no harm will come to you here. Isn't that interesting? I actually like that part of it, that Paul actually probably was feeling fear. God tells him, don't be afraid any longer. So it's normal to be afraid sometimes in your faith. Students, it's normal to be afraid to stand up before your faith. Even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, felt fear. That's encouraging to me, by the way. But Paul was given this word, no one's going to harm you or attack you. But Sosthenes didn't get that word. He's the leader of the synagogue. We don't know his faith at this point at all. All we know is after the Roman governor says, I'm not going to punish Paul for anything, it says they grabbed Sosthenes. And I'm sorry, the Greek is a little unclear. Who's the they? We don't know who the they is. But they grabbed him. It seems like it's the angry mob. That, that makes the most sense. So it's the Jews who were against the teaching of Christianity, grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, so he's the new leader, and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And the governor, Gallio, looked and wasn't concerned about it. <laughs> he's like, yeah, not my fight. Let them work it out. So there's some good questions here, right? Why did they beat Sosthenes? What did he do? We have no idea. It could be that he was sympathetic to the Christian message. It could be that they were like, you have no control over this situation. It could be that they thought that he was going to lead them better, and they said, you're not doing your job. So they beat him, which started the tradition that is carried on today towards pastors. So they, oh, not funny? That's that's funny. Now this idea that we don't know why they beat him, but their anger was directed at him and they beat him. So Sosthenes' story is a rough one. And isn't it interesting that the very next time we hear his name, he's listed as a fellow brother in Christ along with Paul. I think when we did our series on 1 Corinthians, we talked a little about that. But could it be that Paul and the Christians went and picked up Sosthenes? Could it be that they went to the one who was betrayed, who was beaten? They grabbed him, they took him in. They cared for his wounds. They spoke grace and love over him. They didn't say, how dare you bring Paul before the judgment seat? How dare you come against us? Why would you ever do that? In fact, what they did is they brought him in and they loved him first. And the next thing we see, the next thing we hear about him, is he's a brother in the Lord. Everyone had a different story. Some of these stories are ordinary. Some, like Sosthenes, I think 
uh, one on the teaching team said, Sosthenes got jumped into the Christian community. <laughs> he didn't receive the same assurance of protection that Paul did. But that was his story. That's what brought him to faith in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, I'm going to invite the worship team to start making their way up as we close. I want to show you this verse here. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave nor free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. See, we all have different stories here. And let me tell you something. Your story of faith is amazing. It's a miracle. It's worth sharing. And it matters. It matters. Don't think your story is too ordinary to make a difference. It matters. Don't think your story is too crazy to make a difference. Because it matters. We all have different stories. And this master storyteller has been working in your life from the very beginning to the, this moment now. And some of you are here now saying, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I clicked on this link. I don't know why I'm hearing this message. But God is speaking to you because he's telling your story, writing your story. It matters. Our family stories are a bunch of people made up of a bunch of people like you and like me with the same God giving us the same spirit and new life in Christ. I want to invite you to stand with me as we pray and just turn our hearts to remember the truth of the good news and the truth that that's the good news that binds us together. The truth that says your past is finished in Christ. Your future is taken care of in Christ. Your story in Christ is beautiful. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the reminder of the family stories. Lord, of a lot of different people with unique stories that were loving and building the church. God, of all the different ways that you were reaching out and finding them and the ways that you have found us. Maybe the way you're finding someone this morning. God, I pray that as we turn our hearts back to you, that we be reminded of the good news. Reminded that you are the answer to everything we're longing for. That you're our hope. And so, God, we give you our hearts now. And thank you for